You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey, everybody. Peter Maravell is here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the summer season. So uh, as the city begins to reopen, finally, I'd like to remind everyone that the bookstore is once again open for business. Our hours are seven days a week from 12 noon until 8 p.m. You will once again be able to browse our eclectic stacks. Please do wear facial covering when visiting the store in respect for all of those that may still be at risk. We would appreciate it. So tonight's event is a type of a homecoming for us. City Lights has been friends of the Talbot family for many, many years. David has had his offices just down the street from City Lights at the historic Zoetrope building. So we really are neighbors in the literal sense. Uh, We've also hosted many, many past events for David. So tonight we are delighted to welcome Margaret Talbot to the City Lights orbit as well. They have co-authored a remarkable and important new book, which we are honored to be celebrating with his launch party. The book is called By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution. It is published by HarperCollins and via extensive research, utilizing exclusive interviews, original documents, archival research, and so on. The book explores the political landscape of the 60s and 70s, focusing on critical moments in the lives of a diverse group of activist leaders of the 20th century radical movement. These include people like Bobby Seale of the Black Panthers, Heather Booth, the Jane Collective, activists such as Tom Hayden, Jane Fonda, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, as many, many others as well. So Margaret and David have looked at what it was that galvanized these modern revolutionaries and created unexpected connections and alliances between individual movements and across race, class, and gender divides. So they've performed a really great service in giving us a lucid account of one of the most dynamic eras of the 20th century but also a kind of a blueprint for activism that by exploring some defining radical moments, it offers us parallel and lessons for today. So to give you a little bit of background, David Talbot is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, and the acclaimed national bestseller, Season of the Witch, Enchantment, Terror, and Deliverance in the City of Love. He is the founder and former co-editor-in-chief of Salon, and was a senior editor at Mother Jones and the features editor at the San Francisco Examiner. He has written for The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, Time, The Guardian, and other major publications. He makes his home in San Francisco. Margaret Talbot is a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2004. Previously, she was contributing editor at The New York Times Magazine and from 1995 through 1999, an editor at The New Republic. Her features cover legal issues, social policy, and popular culture, and have appeared in The Times Magazine, The New Republic, The Atlantic Monthly, National Geographic, and The Times Book Review. She was one of the founding editors of Lingua Franca and was a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. In 1999, she received a Whiting Writers Award. She is the author of The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century about Lyle Talbot, her father. Before we begin, I would like to he mention that we'll be posting. Too, <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, also David's father. <laughs> yeah, he is painful. Okay. I so, want to make that clear. But, yeah. 
as we know. <laughs> and so it is a great homecoming, a delight and an honor to have you both with us here today, gracing our virtual halls. Margaret Talbot, David Talbot, welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you, Thank Peter. You. Great to be back, yeah, even it really if it's is. virtual. <laughs> Love well, it's a great, great pleasure for us too. And like I said earlier, as we were in the green room, you know, the only thing that's missing is a trip down to Zoetrope for a bottle of wine afterwards, but looking forward to better days and give you a rain check on that one. So um, first of all, congratulations to you both on this great achievement. I mean, this is a very dense, very rich history, or I should say a set of histories. So I'd really love to learn, as I think many of the people in the room would, how did this project emerge? I mean, how did the two of you go about and organizing it? I mean, it just seems so massive. Well, I'll jump in uh, because it started with me. Um, and uh, if he's somewhere lurking out there, I want to give a shout out to our editor at uh, HarperCollins, Jennifer Barth. It, it happened over lunch at Zuni, actually, that wonderful restaurant to give a plug for another local institution that's bouncing back from the pandemic. And Jennifer and I had lunch there, I think maybe it was 2016. And it was her idea to do a book about uh, sort of modeled on Joseph Ellis's book, Founding Brothers, about the first American Revolution, sort of the key movers and shakers behind that revolution. And it was Jennifer's idea to look at the second revolution, the one in the 1960s and 70s, look at the leading figures, men and women this time, who were so key to making the second revolution happen. And uh, I thought that was a great idea. And I, I, I leapt right into it started researching, interviewed a number of people, thank God some of them before they died, like Dennis Banks of the American Indian Movement. And then I had a stroke in November, 2017. And some of my fans out there uh, may know that uh, I did have a stroke back then. I wrote a book about it, a memoir. I seemed to not be able to stop writing even after my stroke, but I did know that I needed some help. And uh, it was, a, a, you know, writing a history book, particularly a book of this nature, is a real challenge. And uh, I hadn't done all the research yet. I'd done some of it. But to complete it, I, I knew I needed help and help that I could really count on. And, and frankly, only help that a family member could supply. And fortunately, I had such a family member, my sister, Margaret. And uh, Arthur Allen, her husband, who's the kind of asylum partner here, and uh, both of them, you know, agreed to help me out and to write part of the book, to research and write part of the book. And I couldn't have done it without both of them, particularly Margaret, who did, uh, you know, a major part of the book and uh, collaborated with me, edited what I wrote, I edited what she wrote uh, before we handed it in. And so it was very much a kind of a mind meld, something that, you know, the Everly brothers could do because they were brothers, you know, <laughs> singing unison. And so Margaret was my other Everly brother, even though she's a sister. And uh, so that's how we did it. We, we wrote it together. And Margaret, you might want to add something. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it was actually a wonderful chance to get to work with David. And um, we'd never really, um, although we've always been close, we had never collaborated on a project before. So that was something I was really happy to be able to do. And also, I just, I loved the idea for this book that it was going to focus on these 
different people at kind of different activists at sort of turning points in their lives. And um, I'm always interested in kind of the emotional, um, the emotional work that goes on when somebody decides to turn their life over to something bigger um, and become an activist and step out of the ordinary run of things and their ordinary life and what it takes and, and how it resonates in their life overall and, uh, and in their personal relationships. And so it just seemed like a way to do that too because of the way the book was set out, um, looking at these um, different characters at turning points. And uh, so, yeah, so, so then I stepped in and started doing some of the kinds of research that David had already been doing um, in archives. And fortunately it was before the pandemic so you could still get into archives and interviewing people, um, interviewing activists. Yeah. And, and really, in way, I was going to add, Peter, in a way, um, my stroke was a stroke of luck, so to speak, <laughs> because the delay in doing the book made the book, I think, more relevant. Both Margaret and I have kids, not kids anymore, young youngins who are in their 20s. One's actually even 30 now. And, you know, for as we were working on the book, the George Floyd uh, murder tragically occurred in Minneapolis. And then there was a whole new wave of radical activism all across the country that kind of kind of protest and kind of energy we hadn't seen, frankly, since I was their age back in the 60s and 70s. And that was inspiring to Margaret and me. And of course, our kids were out there uh, being involved in, in that kind of uh, in this new wave of uh, protest as well. So in a way, I think what we were trying to do was make it relevant for the next generation people are trying to move American history forward. And it, we need to keep doing that, even more so now. You know, I, I wrote a blog the other day about how we need another, our, our movement needs another January 6th kind of moment. We need a fierce sen sense of urgency right now. And I think that's what so many young people are feeling. And I think the book, the lessons, as Margaret said, the turning points in these revolutionary leaders' lives in the 60s and 70s, they were flawed human beings. We don't try to sugarcoat that. We write about them with great honesty, I think, but great uh, also empathy. And I think it's important that the new generation of activists learn these lessons as well. You know, and it really, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it seems so clear to me, you know, when you read this book that, that the arc of the moments that you highlight extend into the present when we look at like Black Lives Matter and, and you know, all the indigenous struggles against the pipelines and, and, you know, Green New Deal and things like that. I mean, all the way through to, you know, the protests in Seattle for WT Bell, Occupy Wall Street and what have you, there's a kind of a continuum here that, that I'm seeing. And, and could you comment on that a little bit? Because it really, you know, you can connect the dots. And I, and I feel like, you know, this book is doing something like that. Margaret yeah, White. I mean, one area, and I know David will want to comment on some of the specific uh, movements you brought up, but I, you know, I think a lot about um, the women's liberation movement and the work that it did around uh, reproductive rights and how urgently uh, that is still before us as we look at these um, increasingly strict um, abortion laws in, in, in Texas and, and Mississippi, the one that's going to be coming before the Supreme Court. Um, next term and so on. And, you know, one of the chapters is about this underground woman run underground abortion providing collective in um, Chicago that in the years before Roe v. Wade 
actually trained themselves to perform abortions for women who needed them and um, had a remarkable safety record actually, um, did about 10,000 abortions and did them safely. So they were able to kind of take matters into their own hands, literally, and to offer this kind of mutual aid um, DIY approach that you do see in, in some movements today and you see it in the reproductive rights movement sphere as well. There are groups like Women on Waves that are um, helping women who want to self-manage their abortions by providing medication to them directly and, um, and other kinds of activism that do that direct kind of work. And there is, I, I think, a real continuum with um, that late 60s and 70s women's health movement, women's liberation, do-it-yourself approach. Yeah, I, I think that's one very relevant chapter. Another, I think, is uh, our chapter on Wounded Knee in the American Indian Movement, the stand that they took there in South Dakota in 1973, an action that many people have forgotten about, but was incredibly brave. Over 200 Native American warriors, local Lakota tribes people, but people from all around uh, the country, convened there and, and retook that very sacred place where in 1890, uh, a terrible massacre had occurred. Uh, George Custer's regiment mowed down some over 200, maybe as many as 300 men, women, and children. And uh, as I write in the book, this was a courageous stand. They were immediately surrounded by militarized police, sheriffs, federal marshals, FBI. They sustained over 500,000 rounds of, it, uh, of, of gunfire. And again, these were, you know, for the most part, largely unarmed people who were only had the power of prayer and a few guns themselves to, to hold off this amazing force. I wrote about this recently for Graydon Carter's new magazine uh, called Airmail. There was an amazing incident at one point, and Dennis Banks told me this shortly before he died at his 80th birthday. I sat down with Dennis, who was one of the founders of the American Indian Movement and one of the leaders of, at Wounded Knee. He said at one point, the FBI and the Justice Department came to President Nixon and said, look, we want to go in, lay down a blanket of gas with helicopters, and basically retake it violently uh, and kill whoever resists. It would be another massacre on the same site where 80 years before uh, the, the original Wounded Knee Massacre had occurred. Nixon, of all people, and we of course think very differently about him today, resisted this and said, do you mean to say that a bunch of ragtag Indians has you on the run? It turns out that Nixon had a kind of fondness for Native Americans because his coach at Whittier College had been Native American. So only he was able to prevent this a second massacre. And yet, they were convinced that Dennis Banks would be taken like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse in the early century and killed uh, when they surrendered finally, which they had to do uh, some 71 days after the occupation wounded knee. I call that chapter The Great Escape. And Dennis's escape from wounded knee, led by a young Navajo named Lenny Foster, who I also had the honor of interviewing, is an amazing story and should be a movie, I think. How he got out there to fight another day. And that is the Native American, I think, uh, mantra, motto. They will live to fight another day. I was the standing rock. It was a victory, of course, until Trump was elected. Then it wasn't a victory. Now who knows what will happen to the pipeline there. 
but Native Americans, as we know, are fighting another even more dangerous pipeline, Line 3 in Minneapolis, sorry, Minnesota rather. That fight for the protection of tribal waterways is not just their fight, it's all of our fight. They know that water sustains life on the planet. It's a fight that we all have to support. And that's why I was at Standing Rock. And that's why we all have to be aware of what's going on in Minnesota today. So we live to fight another day. It's that Native American uh, warrior spirit that I think the movement today has to have, that we can't just fight one day and then go take a nap and think we elected Biden, so it's all over. It's never all over, unfortunately. American democracy is always at risk. And that's, I think, one of the key themes of this book. The people in our book, whatever flaws they had as human beings, whatever mistakes they made politically and personally, and they made a lot of them, and we talk about them, they were still warriors and they took a stand and they wouldn't give up. Yeah, I, I wanted to jump back in to say that I noticed in the chat that um, Heather Booth, who is a key character in the book, one of um, really the founder of the Jane um, Collective said that she is on, she's here with us. Yeah, and um, she went on to an incredible career as an organizer and political force uh, on the left, but started the Jane Collective as a, as a, a, a the abortion service as a 20 year old um, student at the University of Chicago in 1965. So um, kind of an amazing, you know, gutsy move on her on her part and um, was able to do it originally, because she had also been and been politicized as a student in Mississippi in 1964 during Freedom Summer. And so when she got a call from a friend whose sister needed an abortion and was looking for help, um, she didn't know how to do that. But she knew the sort of civil rights um, scene and was able to get uh, find a doctor, a black doctor in Chicago who was a uh, had, had been part of the civil rights movement in the South and had moved to Chicago and was able to step in and do some of the abortions initially. So anyway, those connections um, coming, a lot of people, of course, in our book are people who came out of the civil rights movement, Freedom Summer, and so on. And hers was kind of a direct connection um, from early on. Yeah, I think the coalition building and Heather was so instrumental and, and so expert at doing that, reaching across different political and class and race lines to build movements uh, is an, another important theme of our book. I don't think people realize the extent to which Tom Hayden, Bobby Seale, John Lennon, Heather Booth, they all knew each other and often worked together politically. Uh, and I think that's what the Chicago 8 trial was all about. Nixon just threw a bunch of leaders, many, some of whom didn't even know each other, into uh, the same box and put them on trial uh, for conspiracy and incitement to riot in Chicago after the uh, Democratic Convention in 68. Uh, but, you know, it's true that people did conspire. People got together. People worked together. Bill Zimmerman is another amazing figure in a book. I don't know if Bill is out there somewhere. But Bill, um, like Zelig, kept popping up at different key moments. He, too, like Heather, went to the South during the civil rights voter registration drives as a young man. He later flew the airplane and risked his life. Uh, over Wounded Knee and dropped supplies to Dennis Banks and uh, the others gathered there. It was a, a moment when they were starving and uh, they desperately needed that, that uh, airlift. Uh, Bill Zimmerman also helped organize the May Day 
the protests against the Vietnam War. He uh, then established uh, the relief agency that helped send supplies, medical supplies to South, uh, Southeast Asia. And he somehow popped up in Los Angeles and helped run Tom Hayden's campaign, uh, was the campaign director actually for Tom Hayden's campaign for Senate in 1976. That we say was an important turning point, by the way, because the left has not, I think, in my estimation, valued electoral politics sufficiently, uh, the new left rather, uh, until this century. And so Tom Hayden's run for Senate back in 1969, jumping from the new left, from the anti-war movement into the electoral arena was a key turning point. And uh, the left took many years to, I think, build on that lesson that running for office and winning office is important in America. But you also found in your Panthers chapter that Bobby Seale was, you know, seriously interested in electoral politics in a lot of, in, in a way that a lot of people haven't recognized. Yeah, that's true. I interviewed Bobby about that. Bobby said that uh, the use of guns and confronting the police, and there was a dramatic story that he acted out for me because Bobby, is a, as he's uh, quick to, to say, used to be a stand-up comedian, a jazz drummer. He's good on stage. So he acted out this whole scene with me uh, in West Oakland when the Panthers, he and Huey Newton and a dozen other Panthers confronted an Oakland cop who was harassing an African-American citizen on the street yet again uh, for the first time. And they confronted him with guns, but they knew the law inside and out, Huey did. He'd read the law, he was a law student, and he knew what they could do in the way of observing a policeman going about his, his business. So, but Bobby knew that guns were a, a, a explosive, so to speak, uh, you know, way to get, uh, to inspire the black community and to get their attention. But he quickly wanted to pivot from that into, as you say, Margaret, electoral politics. And it took him years, a few more years, but he finally did run for mayor of Oakland in 1973. And I think in some ways that was the pinnacle of the Panthers uh, influence. And he lost and the organization imploded because of uh, repression from the outside and because of his own demons within uh, Huey Newton's problems and, and so on. But I think Bobby's goal of turning the Panthers into an electoral machine was a, a very valid goal. And unfortunately they failed to do that. I'm just gonna jump in to say, we'll have time for questions at the end, but I, Heather points out, <laughs> Heather Booth points out in the chat that there are so many movement heroes on this phone call and um, you know, I, I, I don't know if we'll get to, to, to cite everybody, but I, I am thrilled that you're all here. And I, I, I know she mentioned Connie Field, who made one of the great uh, films about the civil rights movement, um, Freedom on My Mind, which um, I'm sure many of you have, have seen. But um, anyway, um, thrilled, thrilled to have so many people who are part of this history on the, on the call. Margaret, let me ask you a question. Yeah, uh, hit me. Of Heather, a, a question that I think will come up a lot for us. Uh, so our book does revolve around these leaders, mm -hmm. uh, odd human beings, but leaders who were visionary and charismatic and, 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 and changed history in conjunction with the movements they led, of course, um, and many unsung people as well. But, but our book makes an argument for the value of leadership. And uh, 
so we've done a lot of thinking about this and how would you answer that the criticism from younger activists that that leaders are a problem and that you need more sort of a horizontal kind of structure rather than a vertical structure and that leaders get assassinated or they become corrupt or they sell out or or, or so on how would you answer that criticism well, you know, I know that that is a, a um, kind of a hardy perennial issue in, in social justice movements, right? I mean, it was an issue, it was discussed, you know, by many of the people and debated and fiercely debated by many of the people that were writing about, certainly in the women's liberation, uh, you know, movement, there was a lot of kind of um, punishment of, 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 of women who, who stood up too much or, or were too, became kind of national figures and didn't seem sisterly enough or didn't seem, um, you know, in some cases self-abnegating enough who were kind of putting themselves out there. And I think, you know, there've been a lot of critiques of that. Um, uh, the feminist Joe Freeman, among others, has written about that, uh, written, wrote about that at the time, her famous essay on trashing and um, you know, I think uh, we kind of learned the lesson that you don't want to punish people who have singular talents, you know, that you want people to be able to, um, if, they, if they are able to powerfully articulate a vision, you need that, right? You know, yes, social justice movements need to keep their leaders accountable, they need to be uh, democratic, they need to... Um, you know, uh, be wary of people who uh, who who are uh, you know by temperament or 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 whatever it is you know kind of uh, power hungry. But um, you know, I, I think in in we we saw through this book the many ways, including some creative and not obvious ways that leadership is important. And you know, for example, in the chapter that's on the gay uh, rights movement around Stonewall. Um, you know, the character that we focus on there is not a super well-known person. His name is Craig Rodwell. He opened the first um, LGBTQ bookstore um, in, in the country, probably in the world, um, in, in New York in um, the late 60s. But, but his significance in this chapter is that, you know, he wanted to uh, frame and commemorate Stonewall, the Stonewall uprising. So, you know, Stonewall was an amazing night, but there had been other nights where people um, in um, gay bars and cafeterias like Compton, the cafeteria, Compton's cafeteria in San Francisco, you know, uh, had had resisted raids, had, had, had stood up. Um, and he saw the significance of this event as not just that night, but as a chance to um, to show uh, that uh, gay people were capable of resistance and trans people, and um, and and he felt that the most important thing about it was to actually have a a public commemoration of it a year later. So he and others, but he he was instrumental in coming up with this idea for what he called then the Christopher Street Liberation Day, which was a year after the Stonewall Uprising. So it was in June 1970, and it became the first Pride Parade. And you know the uh, the the visibility that the pride parade brought and has continued to bring has been crucial but somebody had to kind of think of this um had to kind of recognize the significance of this moment in the time at the time it was happening and decide that it had to be elevated and named and commemorated and 
uh, marched about. And you see that, you know, uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, last summer's protests, BLM protests and the murder of George, George Floyd. Um, the murder of George Floyd, you know, was, was, was a horrendous event that was captured on video. And that's part of the reason that it, um, that it became the, the spark that it was, but it's also because people recognized that they had to talk about it that way and they had to um, come out in the streets and, and, and frame it as a turning point. So I think that kind of leadership where somebody recognizes a turning point as it's happening, calls it a turning point, and then through sheer force of will makes it a turning point um, is, is an important kind of leadership that you know, you, you, there's a little different from maybe what we think of as, as conventional leadership, but is an important thing that I've, I, uh, an important kind of move that I think we saw in, in a lot of the research for this book. Yeah, and I, th I think that it does take a unique person. Uh, we quote Martin Luther King in our introduction saying, it takes a crazy person really, a kind of craziness to stand up the kind of overwhelming power of the government and police, uh, uh, angry citizens who want to do you harm. And of course, Martin Luther King, everyone thinks of uh, such a paragon of uh, nonviolence, which he was a follower of Gandhian philosophy, but he had arms, he had guns in his house to protect his family against the multiple threats, death threats that they received all the time. So um, I think it, it does take a certain craziness to stand up against that kind of repression. And uh, so these are extraordinary people, I think, uh, that we're writing about in the book. And I say we're writing about it with great honesty, uh, flaws and all, warts and all, but yet there is this amazing courage. I think another common theme in the book is the resistance against police brutality. And we're seeing that again today, not uh, only with George Floyd, but even incidents during the George Floyd trial when more uh, African-American citizens were murdered. It's unbelievable, it's systemic. And of course, there's a new book called America on Fire, which I also recommend. And you can buy that also from City Lights as you should our book, by the way, a plug for City Lights, um, because it again shows that this violence against citizens, uh, particularly African-American citizens, people of color, uh, is systemic. And uh, when people stand up against it, whether it's Bobby Seale and Huey Newton in the streets of Oakland, or whether it's uh, the people in Stonewall, at Stonewall and uh, against the raids that kept victimizing people, uh, gays and lesbians in New York City, it takes a kind of crazy courage and then it takes, a, 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 I think, a visionary leadership to see that as a turning point, as you were saying, Margaret. Um, and not many people are able to do that, to see, you know, why is it that one incident sets off uh, a kind of movement like a collective uh, uprising and others don't. It takes leadership to do that, I think. Mm -hmm. David, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the John Lennon chapter? Because, you know, John Lennon, uh, obviously, there's been a lot written about John Lennon. Um, but I, I was surprised by some of what you found about this very, um, this particular chapter in his and, and, and Yoko Ono's, it's very much about the two of them, um, in, in their life, where they were living in, in the village, uh, in New York, and they really intersected. Again, it's one of these moments where these intersections are really kind of surprising with all kinds of figures. I mean, with, 
you know, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and with Kate Millett, you know, the feminist author of sexual politics and, and with the Panthers. Um, and um, Lennon was really struggling with kind of what his political contribution could be and so on. But how did you kind of get on to that passage? Because that was, that was you, that passage of his life and, and their life together and their political journey. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. It was, it was it, John and Yoko's year of living dangerously. And they were living, as you say, down in Greenwich Village in a little apartment that was owned by Joe Butler, who was the drummer for Love and Spoonful. And uh, they were tired of living, you know, in glitzy hotel rooms. They wanted to live down among their people, around artists and others who lived in Greenwich Village. And they were friends with Merce Cunningham, or Yoko was, from her days as a younger artist. And uh, so they did, they moved down to this small apartment. And uh, as you say, this flow of unlikely people, a lot of them radicals came through the apartment. Kate Millett, Stu Albert, who was another uh, yippie, uh, Abby Hoffman, so on, Jerry Rubin. And, uh, and the way I found out about this was I was reading from uh, the chapter we did on uh, the Black Panthers, an old history with Panthers. And I found that the guy I'd never heard of He's basically a bodyguard, a Black Panther bodyguard, showed up one day. He was ordered to come to John Lennon and Yoko Ono's apartment in the village by Huey Newton because John had to go uptown to play that night at a benefit for the families of people who'd lost loved ones at Attica, the prison uh, uprising in upstate New York. And uh, it was, a, of course, a searing uh, moment in, in history, in American history, New York history. And uh, there was a benefit going to be held at the Apollo Theater. Aretha Franklin was due to perform, John Lennon and a number of other people. And John, uh, Huey Newton thought, given the kind of raw feelings at the time, he should have an escort. So the Panthers took John Lennon up to uh, Harlem uh, that night. He performed Imagine and a, a song he wrote about Attica. And when I heard about this, that he'd hung out with the Panthers, he went out to dinner later, that uh, he felt very comfortable with them, that the song he wrote, the, I mean, if you read lyrics uh, that John was writing at the time, that year in particular, but really, you know, throughout uh, his post Beatle period, the songs he was writing, were, writing was, were more and more radical and very introspective songs, and then songs about the world at large, and uh, injustice and racism and, and sexism. It blew my mind. I'd always been a Beatles fan. I'd always been a Lennon fan. I knew he'd gotten more political, but I didn't realize how committed he had become and who he was hanging out with, and the extent to which the Nixon administration saw him as a threat. And of course, John Wiener, who's a mutual friend of ours, the historian, has done great work in this area on, on the Nixon and the FBI and how they saw him, John as a major threat to Nixon's reelection in 72. They were deathly afraid and his original plan was indeed to go around the country, organize the, the youth vote against uh, Nixon and, and uh, you know, get rid of him. And uh, Nixon declared war on him and the surveillance and the firepower and the FBI kind of harassment directed then at John Lennon and Yoko and were amazing uh, and shows again, I think the power of radical celebrity. I think John became isolated uh, increasingly. Uh, it's too difficult, I think, for celebrities, particularly when they're on their own 
Yuki and Yoko had each other, of course, but that wasn't good enough. Jane Fonda had a more of a movement and had an organization behind her with Tom Hayden. The Indochina Peace Campaign and the Campaign Later for Economic Democracy were statewide organizations in California that I think helped sustain Jane through a lot of the pressure and harassment and uh, threats that she was receiving also. So I think, you know, another lesson of our book is you need to protect your celebrities, frankly. You know, you think of celebrities as these super uh, human people who don't need our care and our support and the same with leaders. But I think we need to take care of our leaders and our celebrities, particularly when they commit themselves to movements and causes that we care deeply about. And we know how much kind of firepower is being directed at them from government. How uh, vulnerable that makes it, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true, that's true. Hey, should we um, Open take some it up. questions? Yeah, let's. Yeah. Peter? Yeah, so yeah. Um, we've got a few comments here. Um, Questions, comments? Let's see. Jim asks, I'm also interested in the JFK question. What was the connection between the assassination and the movement that came later? What was the resonance between his critique of the military industrial complex and the anti-Vietnam's movement? That's well, right. David <laughs> <laughs> I go into that more in The Devil's Chessboard, uh, my book that came out uh, also a HarperCollins book years ago and in the brothers uh an earlier book but i think assassination is an important question that we should deal with here and margaret and i can both deal with that uh craig rodwell who margaret writes about in the stonewall chapter very visionary uh, activist in new york was lovers with harvey milk and i think the assassination of harvey milk and mayor george Moscone in san francisco set back the cause of uh, sort of progressivism many years in this city was a really a mortal blow in many ways. In fact, Cleve Jones, who was a young activist who was uh, close to Harvey Milk at the time, later told me his first uh, feeling was that it was the death of the gay rights movement when you kill a, a leader like Harvey Milk. So uh, we talked about the death and the murder of Fred Hampton, an outrageous uh, assassination by a death squad organized by the FBI and the Cook County DA's office. And it, you know, murdered him in his bed while he was lying drugged, by the way, by a police informer lying with his pregnant wife and just shot him to death in his bed. You know, of course, we now have the movie about this that came out last year, which was, uh, I thought, really important. But I think assassination is a tool of power. It's been used repeatedly in this country against leaders. We examine the charge even if John, uh, John Lennon was assassinated. His son, Sean Lennon, felt that way and told New Yorker magazine that, that he was killed for political reasons. Um, we couldn't confirm that. Um, but I do think that assassination in many cases has been used as a political tool. Uh, you know, from my earlier books, I feel that about the Kennedy brothers, about Martin uh, Luther King, about Malcolm X. And uh, about two years ago, I got a kind of uh, a very very distinguished list of people, everyone from Daniel Ellsberg to uh, two surgeons who worked on President Kennedy at Dallas's uh, Parkland Hospital as he lay dying, um, a, a vast range of people uh, who signed a letter saying the investigations into the murders of uh, President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King should be reopened because there's still many unanswered questions there 
we now know about Malcolm X that his assassination was probably organized by uh, elements of the Nation of Islam, where he'd broken from, and the FBI that were collaborating with each other. So I think, yes, sadly and tragically, leaders are picked off in this country, and the uh, assassination is a political weapon, not just in the US, but other parts of the world, of course. And uh, we need to find better ways of protecting our leaders. I have a question about social media. Considering everything we've learned from the past, what are the, the advantages that we have now versus you know, what existed for the period of time that, that you know, you've covered in the book? Margaret, why don't you go? Yeah, one. I mean, I still do feel that um, probably the most you know, important thing is getting people out in the streets is getting, you know, bodies kind of on the line. However, you saw, for example, in the BLM demonstrations last summer, that the ability to mobilize people really quickly uh, through, um, you know, all kinds of social media, particularly for, you know, younger people, got a lot of people out in the streets, including in parts of the country that don't usually see large scale demonstrations or haven't um, in you know rural parts of the country, small towns. So I think the capacity for for mobilizing people is is through social media is remarkable. But for me that feels like step one and 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 step two is getting out and doing the actual um, marching and organizing and you know IRL activity activism. Um, but David, you're in a way more, more of a social media person than I am. So maybe you, you, maybe you have something more to add to that. I don't know. Well, no, I, I think it's, it is uh, obviously a tool, a useful tool, and I use it a lot. And I know many, many people do use it, particularly younger generation. But I do, I agree with you, Margaret. I, I see it as one tool, but it doesn't replace all the hard work that needs to be done it can amplify it, but uh, in terms of you know voter registration, getting people out to vote, uh, getting people to join unions, you know all that old-fashioned uh, stuff that people were doing that we wrote about in our book, still I think is uh, crucial. I mean, thank God for Stacey Abrams and the voter registration, the hard grassroots work that Absolutely. she did for yeah. years and months. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, right now we have this fragile, you know, 50-50 kind of Senate situation and Joe Manchin of course has made things even worse uh, in the last couple of days but at least we have two democratic senators from Georgia because of her work so um, that's the kind of I think gutsy grassroots work that we sometimes overlook but is heroic yes absolutely yeah. I have a comment here did you speak at all to David Victor Harris the nation's first radical college student body president at Stanford his book, Dreams Die Hard, about his time with uh, Allard Lowenstein was amazing. We didn't talk to David. I know David's been sick. He's been seriously ill for some time now. He's a hero. Uh, I've talked to David in the past or communicated with David in the past. In fact, he signed my statement about the, the importance of reopening the investigations into the murders of these uh, American heroes. And uh, I have great respect for what he did as a young anti-war activist willing to go to prison for his beliefs. Uh, and that's what it takes, of course, in many cases. You have to be willing to put your body on the line 
that's what the people at Standing Rock at Wounded Knee, uh, Black Panthers who went into the streets against violent and racist cops. You know, all these people, Martin Luther King, every day of his life was putting his body on the line. And of course, some people suffered the ultimate, I think, sacrifice. And without that, America would not be pushed forward historically. So uh, thank God for people like David Harris. Again, they're heroes. He's not one of the people in our book, but I, I consider him a hero. So I have another uh, comment here. 20 states are considering approval of a total ban on teaching about slavery, reconstruction, and lynching. Your book would, based on banning critical race theory, also probably never make it to a library at the University of Idaho, Texas, Mississippi, et cetera. Can you comment on this? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I find it so amazing that we are having this discussion at this point that, you know, this attitude of sort of see no evil, hear no evil about America's history of enslavement and the legacy of enslavement is just extraordinary. I can't believe that it's anything more than a sort of last gasp. Uh, and I feel like the kind of weight of really important books, scholarship, discussion of that history is, is just so overwhelming and, and, and so um, kind of inspiring that I, I can't imagine that these uh, kind of, uh, you know, weak arguments for ignoring it all are, are, are going to prevail uh, for long. But it is extraordinary that we are still having the debate about whether it's okay to uh, acknowledge slavery and its uh, and its legacy in 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 teaching America's school children. It's it's uh, my mind. I mean, I, I I felt inspired and also completely dismayed when I read reread the Black Panthers ten point program that Bobby Seale and Huey Newton wrote when they started the Black Panther Party for Self Defense over fifty years ago over 50 years ago, and you should read it. It's, I mean, it, the demands are still, I think, relevant, sadly, tragically, today. The demands to end police violence against their community, the demands for equal access to employment and education and decent housing, the demands for reparations for slavery, the demands to end Jim Crow uh, justice and sort of systematic, systematic uh, incarceration of Black Americans. I mean, these were the demands of the Black Panther Party over 50 years ago, and we're still fighting for them today. And they still seem out of reach today, I think, uh, to many of us. So um, the book is inspiring, but it's also you know, it tells us how much we need to up our game, frankly. And, you know, we saw this resurgence last year as we've been talking about, but it's not good enough to have just these spasms of protest. They need to be organized, they need to be led, they need, to, we need to have a culture of resistance that doesn't exist right now. I mean, you know, when I think of the, the music, uh, our brother Steve is doing a documentary about the wave of anti-war protests in 1969 when Nixon and Kissinger were threatening to use the madman uh, strategy and uh, threaten North Vietnam with nuclear weapons and came close, you know, probably to using them 
And we've done that many times in our history, come close after Hiroshima and Nagasaki to using them again against uh, you know, uh, civilian populations. And so it took a wave of anti-war protests to prevent Nixon and Kissinger from doing this, from going nuclear. And uh, the music, you know, Pete Seeger, John Lennon, uh, Richie Havens, you know, at these uh, these protests was just we assumed that 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 was part of our culture. Peter Paul and Mary and others went on on Joan Baez. We were talking about David Harris. Joan Baez was married to David Harris for a while. Um, you know, Dylan. Uh, the, I just watched "Don't Look Back," the amazing uh, Penny Baker documentary on Dylan's tour of England. I think in 1965 it was in black and white. You know, and and just what an amazing character he was. You know, and, and the kind of genius of his songwriting. And you know, so it's not just politics. We need a culture of resistance now to bring people together from all races, from all I think generations, from all you know backgrounds. And that's the sense we had back in those days in the 60s and 70s that we had this one big movement. You know, Martin Luther King was trying to put that together when they killed him. And I think they killed him for, for that reason. That was the final straw, the people who wanted him out. He was trying to lead a poor people's march that included every strain of resistance in America. Bobby Seale, and this blew my mind, told me that he had Ralph Abernathy, his right-hand person, call up Bobby Seale from the Panthers and say, would you join my poor people's march on Washington? And Bobby Seale, everyone thought, well, that, that will never happen. The Panthers are way too militant for someone like Martin Luther King. No, King reached out to Bobby Seale and Bobby Seale said enthusiastically, yes, I would be honored to join your march and to occupy Washington. The point of that was not just to march on Washington, it was to occupy Washington. They were gonna occupy Washington in 1968 until Congress diverted funding from the Vietnam War to domestic, urgent domestic projects and issues. So it was a radical thing. And I don't think they wanted a Martin Luther King to pull together a movement of that power, a coalition of that power. And so I think others tried to take up, of course, his banner afterwards, but no one had the kind of charisma. I think the uh, the visionary leadership, the spiritual leadership in, in many ways of Martin Luther King. So again, it shows you the importance of these leaders, how they make a difference, a huge difference, and how they need to be protected. I have another question. Uh, do you think one of the shortcomings of the 60s generation of political leaders was a lack of intergenerational organizing? Instead of making common cause with leftists who came before them, that the generation of radicals seemed very focused on making a break with the past, quote unquote, don't trust anyone over 30, et cetera. What could today's generation of leaders learn from looking back at this legacy? Well, Margaret, you read the Port Huron statement. You had some interesting things to say about that, of course, and Heather, if she wants to comment on that. Of course, uh, Heather's late husband, Paul Booth, was involved in, I think, writing that statement. And that statement in some ways was the uh, founding statement of the new left. 
And I think there was a feeling among people in that generation that the old left, particularly uh, the Communist Party affiliated left, was too stuck on foreign ideologies, was too stuck on dogma that didn't make sense any longer to a younger generation, and there needed to be a radical break from it. And partly it was the Cold War, of course. The Cold War, I think, unfortunately, had vilified, had demonized the old left. And so there was this kind of historic break between generations, not entirely of the new left uh, making, but also because of Cold War propaganda, frankly. And I think that was a mistake. It was a mistake. And I think the new left then had to learn its way, sort of find its own way without the advice of elders. And, uh, you know, what Tom Hayden called it, a crisis of elders. What he looked around and saw the elders, the elders of all, and this is in the Democratic Party, and, and uh, you know, we're so-called uh, Cold War liberals too. We're all devoted to uh, the Cold War, the Vietnam War. And so those people had to be broken away from. So it wasn't, I, I wouldn't just put it on young people and young activists. I think the older generation was wedded to some vision of America as an imperial power. And uh, that, you know, kind of embrace of, of America as an imperial power coming out of World War II, I think was uh, kind of a death grip that uh, the older generation uh, wouldn't let go. And it took the Vietnam, the anti-war movement to really finally break that, that grip. Yeah, um, and uh, Peter, I think Heather had a comment. Yeah, let me, uh, yeah. let me uh, unmute Heather for a moment. Unmute Heather. <laughs> Wait, mo mostly my comment is to thank you so much for having written this, for having shared the history. So many people of the current generation don't know this history. Many of us may even have forgotten some of it. <laughs> and thank you also for your generosity in including, including me in the book. My, my comment just on youth leadership is that I had two thoughts. One, that part of what made the new left was that it was a break from McCarthyism, which had forced the leadership from an older generation underground or in jail or away from politics and made it illegal <laughs> to, to have progressive ideas, to be against lynching, to be uh, for voting for all. And the new left, part of what was new of the new left is it was this break that we wouldn't just say we'll play the Cold War politics of having to criticize the Soviet Union at each point that we had to criticize the US. And there was an internal rift over that. And then also the new left, we had to learn about how you do organization, how you do sustain leadership. How do you have leadership who sustain other leaders how women can also be leaders, how black people are leaders in their own organizations. And maybe we have to find ways that we have a more integrated society. There's a lot of things we've learned since then and a lot of things we knew that we can still pass on. Anyway, thank you so much for having written this book. I haven't read it and I look forward to reading it. Good, good, thank you. Thanks. It's, it's great to hear. It's, yeah. Heather Booth is a, is a giant of this period and, uh, and not just this period, but continued to be active throughout her life. So thank you so much, Heather.
Absolutely. I wanted to add to what she said that, yes, the new left had to invent its own way because the, the communist left, the old left, had been forced underground, had been imprisoned, had been depoliticized by government pressure and so on. And, uh, I, you know, we were aware of that. But uh, one of the lessons we did learn also, I think that was a good lesson, the new left, was that we had to make a uniquely American, I think, uh, left. And not depend, not be so tied to uh, Moscow, to uh, foreign ideologies. And in fact, Bill Zimmerman uh, told me, and Bill was a member, of course, the New Left, as I said earlier, was very active in many different uh, aspects of it. Um, Bill told me that when he and Tom Hayden decided to run a campaign for Senate in '76, they had to kind of relearn about America because they've been so influenced by, you know. Uh, sort of foreign uh, leaders and foreign ideologies, Mao, Ho Chi Minh, Che, and so on. And so they had to learn to speak in American lexicon again, in a way, in a vernacular, and to find out what was important to American people. So uh, I think that was a, a useful discipline. And, uh, you know, I know, Heather, you've gone into electoral politics a lot in your life, worked on the Harold Washington campaign, among other things that Bill Zimmerman also did uh, for mayor in Chicago, first African-American elected mayor. So, you know, I think, you know, electoral politics kind of, uh, is limited, you know, in some ways, but also it imposes a useful discipline also on leftists. Well, we have just about run out of time here. We have so many more comments and questions, but I'm hoping that, you know, we'll be able to kind of continue these kinds of dialogues into the future. Uh, congratulations to you both. This is such a remarkable book and City Lights, of course, is, is so proud to be featuring it. And we're really very grateful that you made this the launch party. It means a lot to us and um, being the good neighbor you are. Uh, Margaret, David, thank you so very, very much for this. Uh, yeah. It is always a great pleasure. You are such good friends. And uh, thank you all for being in the room tonight. I hope you all be safe. You'll be well. I hope to see you again very, very soon. And please do buy the book. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thanks Great to everybody. To Great to see you virtually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, y'all. Take care. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.